Hello, once again, thanks for joining us on Space Nuts. My name is Andrew Dunkley, your host, and on this week's program, episode 306, we're talking asteroids. There are a couple of asteroids in the news. There's the one that's going to pass us by in the next few days. It's, it's humongous. And there's another one that NASA is asking for help with, and we'll tell you why. There's also a, a lot of discussion on at the moment about the Hubble constant, they're trying to figure out the expansion of the universe and why it is happening the way it is and what exactly is happening, and the numbers don't stack up, but they think they've come up with a reason why, so we're going to look into that. We'll also answer some questions about white holes and gravity. That's all coming up on this week's episode of Space Nuts. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9... Ignition sequence start. Space nuts. Five, four, three, two. One, two, three, four, five, five, four, three, two, one. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. And joining me as he does each and every week without fail because he is chained to his desk like a good public servant <laughs> should be is Professor yes. Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. <laughs> Hi, Andrew. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm good. And you're still around after a change of government. That's good to see. <laughs> So far, so good. Yeah, yeah. Although I'm just, as we speak, I'm just apologising for a meeting that I'm going to be able to make. That's not. <laughs> that's because I'm talking to you. Well, I feel very important now. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, it's an important meeting too, but not as good as this. Yes. And before we get down to business, you fell off your bike. <laughs> yes, I did. You should never uh, tell me things off camera. No, you know, you'd think for somebody who is interested in a in a topic namely astrophysics, that absolutely centres around phenomenon of gravity. You'd think I'd understand it and understand that if you try and stand upright on a hill after you're trying to get off your bike because the, 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 the damn bike stands falling down on you, you'd think you'd get off the right side of the bike so that you were kind of facing up the hill rather than down <clears throat> because down tends to keep on going, which is what yes. I did yesterday. Oh, uh, yeah, dear. So I've got a very sore hip at the moment, but we're still in one piece. And All right. Well, so far, so good. <laughs> that's probably just as bad as what I did yesterday. I stabbed myself. All right. There you go. Oh. Right on the point we're of the about- finger with, with a pair of scissors. I was trying to open one of the Salvo's <laughs> donation buckets for the Red Shield appeal because by yeah. law in New South Wales they have to be sealed, and we seal them with zip ties. And I was trying to lever the... Um, scissors underneath the zip tie to <laughs> prise it up and cut it, and it slipped and went straight into the tip of my finger, right near the fingernail. So Ooh. I lost a lot of blood. I feel very faint now. But, yes, you um, would. I yeah. would. Probably made a mess of the, everything you were trying to handle as well. Yeah, I didn't bleed on anything but myself. I'm very good at holding <laughs> holding back the flow. But that, we're all well now. We're all good. Whoever invented if, if, Band-Aids deserves a medal. Oh, indeed, that's right. Yeah, mm. but it doesn't say much for our respective competence in humans no, that we are. It we does ought to have not. sorted out when we're in our pre-teen, pre uh, preschool here. Yes, indeed. Well, now, Fred, let's talk about there. asteroids. Yeah. The first one we need to talk about is asteroid seven three three five nineteen eighty nine J A because it's going to pass the planet in the next few days, and for those who've sort of taken an extra week to listen to this podcast. It's already happened, but it will happen Friday, technically speaking, and it is a big, big, big one, about 1.1 miles across or something. Yes, that's right. 
getting on for two kilometres, Andrew, and that's mm. that's a definitely a killer one that size. Yeah, we you know the rule of thumb that the asteroid world uses or the near earth asteroid world is 100 meter asteroid is the same as a 100 megaton nuclear weapon in the atmosphere Whoa. so imagine something 20 times that size it's it's um nationwide devastation i think yeah an asteroid well known very well known j 1989 sorry 1989 ja that tells you uh, when it was discovered in fact it was discovered by somebody that i used to know elena helene who was very, very prolific asteroid observer at the Palomar Observatory in California. And he, and she spent time working at the United Kingdom Schmidt Telescope that I used to be stronger in charge of. So she came over. It would have been in the would have been, yes, the late 80s when she was when she was over with uh, one of her students, a young man called Bobby Boss, who I think became quite famous in this world as well, in the asteroid world. So yeah, it's a near-Earth object. It's, its trajectory, which took it or takes it, you know, close to Earth, is still quite relaxed in the sense that it's 11 times the distance of the Moon is the nearest that it gets, two and a half, sorry, it's about um, more than three million kilometres, three and a half mm. million kilometres, something like that. So it's, it's not going to do anything but uh, it's always a salient thing to take note of the fact that these things are charging around uh, in our vicinity it is classified as a pha a potentially hazardous asteroid and you know it's one of these objects that is now monitored very assiduously in fact by nasa's center for near earth object studies it's uh, very much on their horizon. So a news item that shouldn't cause any kind of distress in, in the sense that it's a good news story because we know about these things yes, now, yes. which we didn't a long time ago when uh, things just you know came flying at us from space, gave comets a bad name, gave asteroids <laughs> a bad name. So, yeah, so that's, as I said, a good news story. Yeah, I, I know uh, I've read a few stories about it in the popular press and, of course, a few referring to it as a near miss or a, you know, we're avoiding disaster, all those sorts of headlines to try and make you read it. I thought the funniest one, though, was where they were trying to make people understand how big this is. I mean, if you say two kilometres, 1.1 miles or whatever number it turns out to be, people will go, oh, righto, I can yeah. see that far. But one article reported it as being double the length of the Burj Khalifa, the tallest building in the world. Now, that, that's probably a fair assessment. But the one that made me laugh was the one where I think they're trying to, I don't know if it's desperation or if it was a headline they thought would just grab your attention, but 350 times the size of a giraffe. <laughs> Usually it's elephants, Andrew. So, yeah. I was out at the zoo last week and I was looking at the giraffes and I didn't yeah. kind of equate them to asteroids. No, no, no. And it's, you know, I don't really get that because how can you imagine something 350 times that size? It's, I know. <laughs> that was exactly what I thought. Anyway. Oh, well, it got my attention, so I suppose that's why. Okay, so that's happening on Friday. Will we, will we be able to see it? Uh there will be. The problem with asteroids, near-Earth asteroids, is that they move 
through the sky so quickly yeah. when they're close by. And amateur astronomy telescopes, which is what you'd need to do, to do something like that, are not really tuned usually to things going that fast. It needs a slightly different way to I, mount the I don't think I telescope. could wiggle my knobs fast enough. Yeah, well, that's right, yes. It's knob wiggling. It's usually electronic knob wiggling. You need to <laughs> essentially put in the coordinates. Having said that, that segues rather nicely to the next story, yeah. which is much smaller objects that NASA knew was in our skies. Another potentially hazardous asteroid, this one, 2012 UX68. On the 15th of May, 10 days ago as we speak now, was within two lunar distances of our planet. So that is in the region of, uh, you know, seven to 800,000 kilometres. Mm. And its near, its its close approach uh, actually took place while Hemisphere was facing the asteroid. And so NASA were very keen for observers in Australia and New Zealand to uh, to actually try and get some imagery of it because what you need is a is a fix on it its position at any given instant so that you can refine its orbit and you can know just uh, to the extent to which this close approach has actually altered the orbit of the asteroid so there was yeah there was a, an alert um, from NASA's JPL and actually uh, in collaboration with our national science agency the CSIRO which was responded to by scientists at the University of New South Wales. Actually, I think their campus in Canberra, this, uh, so it's Canberra Space, which is one of their departments, and in, collab- in collaboration actually with colleagues in New Zealand. And that worked out well because the weather in Australia was pretty rubbish, as it has been for about the last six months. I know. Uh, whereas New Zealand, they got, um, they got some good observations of it. This this object is much smaller than the one we've just been talking about. It is 70 metres or thereabouts, but still, you know, big enough to be a worry if something like that impacting the Earth actually, you're talking about a Tunguska event, something, you know, that could demolish uh, a fairly large area of vegetation, for example, as the Tunguska asteroid did back in 1908. Was that right? Yeah, I think it sounds familiar. Yeah. So, so it's... It, it is, uh, yeah. I guess these stories are just reminding us that we live in a fairly busy part of the solar system. Space is big, of course, so that a miss is as good as a mile. But mm. the, as I said before, the great news is that there is an entire industry now which is uh, on asteroid watch, if you put it that way. And just as a postscript to this, we have had some interesting correspondence recently with scientists about... Uh, Trying to get some Australian involvement in the DART mission. You remember DART? That's uh, yeah. the double asteroid redirection test. It's a NASA uh, probe which is on its way to an asteroid called Didymos, which is a double asteroid. And what they're trying to do is take a swipe at Didymos's moon to just change its orbit slightly and then check what has happened just to see basically what the effect of clouting an asteroid is. Didymos has a moon called Dimorphos, which is, I think it's only a few metres across, I can't remember the numbers. But, yeah, we're um, interesting possibility that maybe we in Australia might get involved with observe some of the observations that um, might be needed for uh, actually quantifying how much 
of an impact, how much of a move that has made, that the impact has made on the on the asteroid Dimorphos. Okay, well that that will be interesting. That that's a very exciting project. It oh, does yeah. also make me wonder, Fred, if are we even with asteroids that we know about and that are documented and we know where they're going to be in years to come, what's to stop them being hit by something in the outer reaches and being knocked onto a collision course with Earth? Yeah, well, it could happen, that's right. Usually, um, you know, these things are continuously monitored uh, to the extent that you can. Sometimes they get lost. They they just go so far away from Earth that you lose them because we're talking about, you know, things fairly near the limits of detectability, these small objects, although mm. we've basically found things down to 10 metres in size with a whiz by the Earth. So it's a tribute to the the kind of technology that we have these days, and also um, to the the will within the scientific community to devote resources to this, because in a sense it's civil defence. So there is a you know there is a pretty strong mandate for doing that. Uh, but I, as I've said, told you before, I, I on the periphery of of the beginnings of this sort of study with two of my colleagues in Edinburgh, Victor Klub and Bill Napier, who were among the first to recognise that the Earth's history has been has been affected by impacts and may continue to, to do so. Yeah. yeah. Well, we only talked about one a couple of weeks ago uh, in China, wasn't it? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Mm. yeah. All right. Watch with interest. And if you've got the gear and you're an amateur astronomer, maybe you'll be able to track 1989JA later this week. This is Space Nuts. You're with Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson. Let's take a short break from the show to talk about our sponsor, NordVPN. A virtual private network is an excellent way of protecting your private and business data from hackers and even your own government, but not all VPNs are the same. Some have poor encryption and some just slow you down. Uh, That's not the case with NordVPN. Uh, They have the best security in the business and their internet servers won't slow you down. In fact, there are times when connecting to NordVPN will be faster than your normal internet connection. Don't ask me how, but it's true. I've seen it myself. And Nord has some big name organisations to back their claims like Wired, Forbes, BuzzFeed and even the BBC and a few others. The bottom line is that once you connect your device, and that includes computers, phones, tablets, TVs, just about anything that goes online, your privacy is assured. You're protected from criminals and surveillance, and you're not geo-blocked either. It's reliable with 24-hour, seven-day tech support and a 30-day money-back guarantee. They believe they are the best in the business, and from my experience, it's true. Now, as a Space Nuts listener, We have a special URL for you to access NordVPN and grab a very special deal. NordVPN.com slash SpaceNuts, where you can use the special code SpaceNuts to get NordVPN with benefits. A two-year plan, heavily discounted, giving you access to their high-speed, and when I say high-speed, 10 gigabits per second servers in 60 countries with security for up to six devices. So check it out today at nordvpn.com slash spacenuts and use the code spacenuts to grab this exclusive deal to spacenuts listeners. nordvpn.com slash spacenuts. Now, back to the show. Roger, you're live through here also. Spacenuts. Now, Fred, from asteroids to the Hubble constant. Now, this, this is something that 
I guess we need to explain first up, but there's a lot of work going into understanding this and, and a 30-year Hubble study from the Hubble Space Telescope has come up with some data, but uh, it's also created more questions. But then there's another study that seems to have potentially come up with answers to those questions. So let's start at the beginning. What is the <laughs> Hubble constant? It's the number that uh, essentially determines what the expansion of the universe is at the moment today. It's usually called H naught. H being for the Hubble constant, the naught is a, is a subscript, which means that it's the Hubble constant now compared with what it might have been some time in the past. Uh, and once again, harping back to when I was a young astronomer in Edinburgh <clears throat> back in the 1970s and, and 80s, the, the value for the Hubble constant was one of the biggest unknowns at the time. The way you measure it, and it's the way Hubble did, was you you look at galaxies and you measure their velocity of recession, how far how fast they are moving away from us. Mm-hmm. But then you've got to have another indicator that tells you how far away they are, because it's by the Hubble constant essentially relates that expansion velocity, the recession velocity of a galaxy, with its distance. The further away it is, the faster it's moving away from us. And so the, the, the trick is finding the means to measure the distance. And the standard yardstick for that, a set of variable stars, which are called Cepheid variables, whose light varies in a way that we understand very well, and we know what their intrinsic brightness is. It goes up and down, but you can take an average and we know what it is. And it depends on what's called the period of oscillation of these things, how regularly they, what the interval is between one maximum and the next. That's basically how they work. So that that fairly complicated set of work led in the, in the 70s and 80s to two quite different estimates of the Hubble constant. There were two opposing groups very, very polarised, one of which, uh, if I remember rightly, led by Alan Sandage, said it was about 50, and I'll say a bit about the universe in, units in a minute. The other one, uh, there, there was a fairly big group. I think uh, Gerard de Vaucouleur was one of the astronomers in that group, and there were others too. The names will come to me in a minute. They, they said it was 100. So you have these two values, 50 and 100, <laughs> Yeah. differing by a factor of two, with two groups swearing blind that that was the answer. So what was the remedy to try and solve this conundrum? Well, it was build a space telescope, which was eventually launched in 1990. We call it the Hubble Space Telescope, and that's why it was built, essentially to resolve this issue by making very, very accurate observations of these Cepheid variable stars in not just our galaxy, not just the, the neighbouring galaxies, but ones that are relatively distant. And, you know, by the turn of the millennium, that had been done. And the, the various teams, I think there were two teams that looked at it, probably, you know, in, inheriting the mantle of those earlier two teams from the 1970s. And they reached a consensus that the Hubble constant was known then to an accuracy of 10, 10%. And the answer was 72, which is pretty well halfway. No, not 42. Those, no, it's not 42. But it's you know if you take the average of 50 and 100, you don't get as far off 72, it's 75. So 72 plus or minus 8 kilometres per second. What mm-hmm. are the units? 
something a little bit abstruse. They are in kilometers per second per megaparsec. Now, a megaparsec is essentially 3.2 or thereabouts million light years, because a parsec is the unit of distance that astronomers use. We don't really use light years, although light years are a very convenient way of expressing distances. A megapar- a par- one parsec is the distance of an object that has a parallax of one arc second, uh, hence the name, a parsec. And it's what, mm-hmm. you, what you actually measure, because parallax is something you determine by the the Earth's orbit around the sun. So one parsec turns out to be roughly 3.2 light years. And so a megaparsec, a million parsecs, is 3.2 million light years. And what so what the Hubble constant means, 72 kilometers per second per megaparsec, it means that for every megaparsec further out you go, the recession velocity, the speed that a galaxy is disappearing, increases by 72 kilometers per second. Okay. So that that's essentially the Hubble constant itself. Right. Now, now the, the plot thickens. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, because, uh, first of all, the, there have been more researchers which have narrowed that, that number down even more. Remember early 2072 plus or minus 8 kilometres per second. By now, because of additions to the telescope itself, actually, there were new cameras that were implemented Mm. Um, we've got a new value which is even more accurate. The current accepted value is 73 plus or minus one kilometer per second. So you're down to a, almost a 1% error. And that, it's, it's actually really interesting because once again, hopping back to Edinburgh, my boss in those days was the Astronomer Royal for Scotland, Professor Malcolm Longair. Scotsman, actually the first Scotsman to be an astronomer for Scotland, who was from somewhere else before that. And I remember him saying this would have been in the before the Hubble telescope was launched. We are on the verge of a new era of precision cosmology. In other words, high precision cosmology, because it was all hand-waving stuff before that. And, and now we've got one kilometre per second accuracy. So Good old Malcolm, his words were correct. That's a terrible impersonation of him, I have to say. I thought it was pretty good, actually. <laughs> I hope he'd forgive me. He's a very inspiring person to work with. He was my PhD supervisor, actually. It's terrifying. Anyway, that is a different story. But, yes, he was right. We were on the verge of an era of precision cosmology, and the Hubble constant tied down to one kilometre per second by you know, the work on the Cepheid variables. But... I knew there was a but coming. I there is a but, yeah. yeah. Where's the but? Uh, it is the fact that there are other ways of measuring the Hubble constant, and they involve looking at the cosmic microwave background radiation, that, you know, that sphere of, of microwave radiation that surrounds us, that we are at the centre of. And mm. what we're seeing there is the echo of the Big Bang. And that... Uh, when you analyse that, which you can do by looking at the slight temperature variations throughout the cosmic microwave background radiation, one part in 100,000 temperature variations, tiny ones, it's been done by a number of different satellites, uh, the most recent of which is the European Space Agency's Planck spacecraft, which really sorted out the details and gave us the best analysis of that cosmic microwave background. When they do their sums, they get a different answer. 
They get a Hubble constant today of 67.5, plus or minus 0.5 kilometres. That's a big difference. A megaparsec. It is when you consider what the error bars are. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's a significant difference given those error bars. And that is the current conundrum. Mm. That's the problem. And he's engaging cosmologists in a big way, this anomaly, the Hubble constant anomaly. There is one piece of research that has really just been released, uh, I think, within the last five days, actually. It's in a pr press release from the University of New Mexico. And it's about scientists who've... These are theoreticians, theoretical scientists, University of New Mexico, very, very clever people who build models of what the universe is doing. And they have reason to believe... It, it's basically, you know, the, to do with mathematical transformations. So we've got we've got some esoteric stuff from the mathematics that we hope will relate to the reality of what's happening in the big universe. And what they've done is they've uh, they've kind of identified something called a scaling transformation. This is a, you know, it's a mathematical entity that's part and parcel of what we're looking at. But it turns out that these things are symmetrical, these scaling transformations. Uh, and they've essentially opened a new path, I guess is the best way to put it, uh, to looking at um, some sort of entity, which they're calling a, a mirror world yeah. or a mirror universe, that might explain this discrepancy. Now, I am, as you can probably tell, Andrew, read enough about this yet to get the details, but the idea of mirror worlds is appealing because that's at the heart of supersymmetry, which is the, you know, the idea from particle physics that there's a whole uh, array of subatomic particles which have supersymmetry with the normal particles that we know about, but which we don't see because they're hidden in higher dimensions and things of that sort. Mm. So I'm going to crib, I'm going to quote from SciTech Daily because they've got a very nice, uh, a really nice kind of one-paragraph summary of what's, what's happening, which I'll read. If the universe is somehow exploiting this symmetry, researchers are led to an extremely interesting conclusion that there exists a mirror universe very similar to ours but invisible to us except through its gravitational impact on our world. Such a mirror world dark sector would allow for an effective scaling of the gravitational free-fall states while, ref while ref respecting the precisely measured mean photon density today. Um, and that plays into it, because the photon density is what, you know, what comes out of the um, cosmic background radiation. One of the scientists who's been involved with this says... It's nice to be able to quote them. In practice, this scaling symmetry could only be realized by including a mirror world in the model, a parallel universe with new particles that are all copies of known particles. The mirror world idea first arose in the 1990s, but has not previously been recognized as a potential solution to the Hubble constant problem. This might seem crazy at face value, but such mirror worlds have a large physics literature in a completely different context, since they can help solve important problems in particle physics. There you go, supersymmetry, I guess, yeah. is what is being referred I, to. 
Sorry, just the final sentence. Our work allows us to link for the first time this large literature to an important problem in cosmology. So, yeah, great stuff. Suppose when you can't, you know, when you when a, when you've got a variable between the estimates for the the Hubble constant, and yeah. you you can't find a physical answer for it, you have to go to theory. You have to go to yes, you know, modelling. Yes. So what's wrong with our models? What's yeah? What are we missing yeah. exactly? Yeah, and, and that's the way also, physics works. Yeah, I also think that this is going to start people asking about dark matter and dark energy. Are they part of the uh, of the equation as well? Indeed, they are. You know, that's because supersymmetry, certainly for dark matter, supersymmetry is one of the one of the great hopes for our understanding of it. Although it's been totally elusive in the particle physics world so far, they haven't cracked it yeah. at CERN. They've sort of almost given up on the chase because they don't think they've got high enough energies at CERN to, to detect supersymmetry. But yeah, I think it's still on the agenda. And what an interesting tie-up, though, between the dark matter problem and the uh, and the Hubble constant problem. Maybe it'll all come together in some magical new theory that we'll be celebrating was, at the end of the year. <laughs> yeah, I was about to suggest that. Definitely worth keeping an eye on. Uh, Thank you. Andy. If you want to, if you want to, uh, if you want to uh, read the article, it's in on the SciTech Daily website. So you, know, you look for uh, what's the title of the article? Ghostly Unseen Mirror World should get you there. This is Space Nuts with Andrew Nutley and Fred Watson. Space Nuts. Okay, Fred. Let's uh, see if we can answer some questions from the Space Nuts audience, and one of our regulars is Rusty from Western Australia. G'day, Fred and Andrew. It's Rusty and Donnybrook. I hope, Fred, you're 100% now after your COVID adventure, and Andrew, you missed out on uh, catching it. So my question is about white holes. Black holes are supposed to be dimensionless. What about white holes? Are they supposed to be dimensionless as well? Uh, and if they're not necessarily dimensionless, uh, could we be looking at the inside of a white hole when we look at the universe? That's it. Thanks very much for a fantastic show, guys. Cheers. Thanks, Rusty. Great to hear from you again. Hope all is well in WA. And, yeah, white holes. Well, first of all, we need to point out that we've never seen one. We don't, don't even know if they exist. But if they did, Fred, would they be dimensionless? <clears throat> yes, <laughs> oh. uh, because uh, so what's a white hole? Exactly as you said, Andrew, they've never been observed, but they are a theoretical possibility that comes out of the equations for a singularity, which is what a black hole is, a point in space uh, of infinite density, and it's dimensionless, so it's that's why its density is infinite. There's no, no dimensions. So what what leads to the idea of a potentially a white hole, is that if you, in the equations for relativity that determine the, you know, the behaviour of a singularity, if you reverse the, I think it's time, the parameter time, if you make it negative time instead of positive time, what you get is something that's the opposite of a black hole. You get something from which everything escapes, but nothing can go in. Now, where it's yeah. escaping from is is a really interesting idea. But, yeah, stuff comes out of it, but nothing can go in. Uh, so it's defined as being the same, uh, you know, the same as a black hole. It's a dimensionless point, but it's got this swap of the time direction in in the equations. Now, 
second part of um, of Rusty's question is really interesting because if you plonk yourself in the middle of a universe that's actually a white hole, stuff's leaving it. Not sure that you would be able to tell the difference whether you were in the centre of a universe made of a giant white hole compared with a giant black hole. Because in both cases, you've got this curious gravitational singularity. People have suggested that our universe has an event horizon like a black hole does, but in our universe, we're looking at it from the inside rather than the outside. Yeah. And it's my understanding that a white hole would have an event horizon as well. But of course, it would be white, hence the the term. Uh, and we've never seen one, which leads, I think, most cosmologists to the idea that they probably don't exist, that there'll be some physical reason why this mathematical entity cannot be brought into reality. I remember a particular Star Trek episode back in the day of the original TV series that uh, Gene Roddenberry wrote, and they, I think, did they go through a black hole and come out the other side, and it was a white universe with black stars. I distinctly remember that. (laughs) Total opposite to the reality that we know. And, uh, you know, I guess that's what a a white hole is technically uh, supposed to demonstrate, the absolute opposite to a black hole in every respect. But (laughs) you've got to ask yourself, how could it exist rather than does it exist? Yeah, that's right. Just going back to that, though, in a way that's what... If your eyes were sensitive to microwave radiation, that's what the universe would look like. White. A, a white universe, yeah. Because oh, wow. of, you'd be seeing the cosmic microwave background radiation. Okay. Pretty faint, but that's what it would look like. Hey, Gene Roddenberry was pretty darn clever, wasn't he? Oh, yeah, yeah, very much so. Mm. <laughs> of course, if you were standing outside our universe and you'd have to run very fast to keep away from it because it moves yeah, so quickly, it would be beige. Would be beige, yeah, that's right. You and you'd need to be running at what is it, seventy-two kilometers per second per megaparsec to keep out the way. At least, <laughs> at least, yeah. Well, you'd be right. You've got a bike. Got a bike, yeah. <laughs> Not very well controlled at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thanks, Rusty. Good to hear from you. Let's move on to our next question, and it'll be the final one for this episode from Cameron. Hey, Fred and Andrew, this is Cameron from Arizona. I had a question about gravity. So you look at the gravity field around the moon or planets or anything, and it's not uniform, right? There's gravitational anomalies. Um, when you look at things like temperature, though, the zeroth law of thermodynamics says temperature should eventually become equilibrium uh, with each other, right? Uh, you put two bodies of different temperatures next to each other, they'll eventually come to the same temperature. Does the mechanism or a law like that exist for gravity? Should we expect that gravitational anomalies on a planet would eventually even themselves out over time? Thanks. Love the show. Wow. That's a really deep question. I don't think we've ever been asked that before or or anything similar to it. That's way out of left field, but I like it. Yeah, it's it's great stuff. Yeah, it always, again, I'm sorry, I'm in nostalgia mode today, obviously, but going back to the 60s and the the Apollo missions, the 
precursors to the Apollo missions, the fact that um, these gravitational anomalies were identified on the moon. They were called mass cons, mass concentrations, because the, you can tell from the orbit of a, an orbiting spacecraft what the gravitational potential is underneath you. And it was because of that, that the movement of the spacecraft tracked very accurately, that you could work out there were these mass concentrations. So mascons were something that were talked about a lot in the Apollo era. They've now been mapped since by the, is it the GRAIL? GRAIL is the pair of spacecraft that were in orbit around the moon to sense the gravity. Gravity Recovery and Interior Laboratory, that's what the, um, the acronym meant for, two spacecraft and the distance between them being measured to a micron or something. And, and that's how you can track the gravity anomalies. So we do, we do know um, about those things exactly uh, as described, that objects like the Earth, we've got very strong gravitational anomalies, which are kind of movable feasts because a lot of it comes from melting ice in the, in the Arctic and Antarctic. Mm. But uh, relating it to the way temperature equilibrates between uh, hot and cold objects is... There are, there are analogues, actually, and I guess what we're talking about here is a kind of allegorical thing almost, because the reason why temperature, you know, if you've got temperature variations in something, the reason why they iron out to become the same is because of one of the heat exchange mechanisms. And, for example, it might be, you know, if you've got a piece of wood or something like that, which is hot at one end and cold at the other, wood's not a very good thermal conductor, so it would take a long time, but eventually the the thing would come to equi equilibrium because of the conduction of heat through the wood. It happens a yeah. lot faster with metal. And we all know about those things. So we know about those various mechanisms for heat transfer. With gravity, though, the gravity is symptomatic of, of well, exactly what we've been talking about, concentrations of mass. So for the gravity to even out, it would have to mean that concentrations of mass evened out. And that would probably happen over very long periods of time. You know, if you've got a world, well, think of the Earth with with the concentrations of mass underneath. Some of that comes from magma plumes and things of this sort, stuff going mm. on in the, Earth's, in the Earth's mantle. Over long periods of time, as that mantle cools, the temperature probably would become even. But it's because, you know, because of thermal conductivity again, because of stuff equilibrating, then that would remove the mass concentration so it smoothed out gravity. But it's not gravity itself that's being smoothed out. It's the mass that's causing that that is being redistributed, if I can put it that way. Okay. Right. So the answer is no. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, it, well, it's yes, but, but it's not gravity. It's stuff, on, you know, the stuff that's causing gravity. Gotcha. Gotcha. Righto. So it's yes. Um, it is yes. I hope that helps, Cameron. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Cameron. Great question, though. Oh, was, fabulous question. Yeah, 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 lovely, yeah. lovely thinking there. I, I saw a really good demonstration, I think it was on TikTok the other day, of gravity. I mean, everyone thinks of TikTok of young people dancing, and that's about <laughs> it. There's a lot more to it. They have some really great bits and pieces of lectures, and I've started following a few people in the scientific and astronomical world, and they did a great demonstration of gravity the other day. They had a piece of black lycra stretched out dead flat, and they rolled marbles across it, and they said, that's a universe without gravity. Yep. Then they put a ball in the middle of it yeah. that sunk down, and that was the sun, and yep. then they started rolling the, the marbles, and they spun around it. In orbit. And they said that's the influence of the, the sun's gravity on the planets. 
and the moons, for example. And um, they said, now we know you're going to ask the question as to why Earth doesn't fall into the sun like the marbles are. <laughs> and, and the answer to that question, which I thought was brilliant, was because out there, unlike on here, there is no friction. Therefore, it doesn't spiral into the sun and disappear. It will one day if it's if it lasts long enough, but I think the sun will probably destroy itself before that happens. I think the timing of the uh, the function of our solar system won't work to a point where we'll get sucked into the sun. It will come over us instead, I think. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. We are actually moving away from the sun slowly. It's, yeah, a really good demonstration, though, yeah. because it... And I suppose you could expand on it by putting different sized objects on the lycra so it shows the different influences of the of gravity, which varies, as we know, due to the, the mass of objects. Yeah. What's really nice about that, Andrew, is that it absolutely demonstrates one of the <clears throat> fundamental principles of relativity. So, yes, you've got you know, the heavy thing in the middle that's distorting the lycra and, and the marbles follow curved paths around it mm. um, as far as the marble's concerned though it thinks it's going in a straight line but it's the space that it's moving over that's bent and that's yes that's the you know the really neat bit this, this these geodesics as they're called that i wish i'd known that 40 years ago when i started playing golf because that's exactly <laughs> the same effect that i have with putting yes yes your straight line is a little bit different from uh, what the Earth wants to give you, I guess. <laughs> yeah, very true. And there's a few other factors in there, like wind and 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 the way the grass grows. Oh, yep. You've got to take all that into account. Absolutely. But that's a different story. But I just yeah. thought it was a fascinating demonstration. Yeah, that's great. And it really that's simplified nice. the way gravity acts on things. Yeah. Now, just a reminder too, if you want to send us a question or send us a comment or just want to make a political statement, uh, you can send it to us via our website, spacenutspodcast.com, and uh, you can uh, click on the AMA link. You can send us text that way or a voice message, or you can click on the right-hand side. There's a little tab there which has vanished off my screen right now. There it is. Send us your voice message. So that's how you can ask us questions or just send us voice messages. Some people just send us messages for the sake of it or just want to make a comment about things, which is fine. We, we use them from time to time. And while you're on the website, check out the Support Space Nuts button and you know, learn about becoming a patron. There are all sorts of ways of doing that and you know, updating the information regularly so if you if you are keen to support us in a financial sense you can do that and there are several options right down to buying us a cup of coffee which uh, i love i'm going to go and have one in a minute and there are don't don't forget uh, to put reviews through as well we we really appreciate the people who've put in reviews for space nuts on their podcast platforms whichever one you use because the more reviews the more attention we get the more people that join us the bigger the space nuts family gets and uh, we we'd love to have more and more people come across and and listen to the show there's also the space nuts shop and also all sorts of other information in there if you'd like to check it out at spacenutspodcast.com or spacenuts.io okay fred thank you so much that wraps it up for another week episode 306 i think it was yeah numbers are racking up aren't they certainly are <laughs> We're going to be on 400 before we know where we are. Oh, yes. Uh, what just do we wait do for till, that one? Wait till we get Start to Start planning now. <laughs> Start planning now. That's right. Yeah. Very right. nice. Thanks, Fred. Yeah. We'll see you next week. Sounds great. Thanks, Andrew. That's Fred Watson, astronomer at large. 
part of the team here at Space Nuts and thanks to Hugh in the studio who does whatever Hugh does. I don't really know, but uh, we appreciate it anyway. And from me, Andrew Dunkley, thanks to your company. Hope you can join us on the very next episode of Space Nuts. Bye-bye. Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. Okay, uh, that wraps it up. Thanks to everyone who watched us live. Thank you. Appreciate it. We'll see you next time. Uru.